The dust has settled on the NHL trade deadline. Now, what's next for the Canucks? It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Joining me, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Dranson, of course. You can read Dranson's work covering the team at The Athletic as well. as been putting out some great stuff around the NHL trade deadline. Canucks Hour, as always, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, Jim Rutherford took over as the president of hockey operations for this team in early December, and immediately, immediately, so much of the conversation was about Trader Jim, Trader Jim, the man who is you know, not afraid one bit of taking big, bold moves to reshape a roster, and there was so much speculation about could marquee moves be on the, uh, marquee names be on the move which players are truly untouchables which players would they like to ship out of town jt miller connor garland brock besser and all the rest the trade deadline comes the trade deadline goes pending ufa bottom six forward tyler mott the only player on the actual deadline day to depart the vancouver canucks going to the new york rangers for a fourth round pick in the 2023 draft so what with a little bit of distance now, given all the hype and all the speculation and what we actually saw on Monday's trade deadline, what, what's kind of your overview of, of how you see things from the Canucks perspective? Well, I think it's important to note this. I don't think the Canucks were satisfied with what got done in its entirety, right? We look at trade deadlines, we analyze trade deadlines, we give grades to performance at trade deadlines. That's how we function. That's how we as hockey punditry, hockey fans, uh, industry observers, everybody. Uh, are, well, that's how we function. That's how we process this date. And yet, for a team, especially a team that seems unlikely to make the playoffs, right? the deadline isn't necessarily the be all and end all. It's not the final statement. It's not the, the period at the end of a sentence. And that's particularly true for this Canucks team because JT Miller, Connor Garland, Luke Shen, Tyler Myers, Tanner Pearson, all the names you can think of that you've heard out there in the ether and in trade rumors over the past three weeks that maybe you got hyped to see what they'd return in a trade. All of them remain under team control. The only guy they dealt on Monday was, was a guy who was expiring, right? They, they dealt the guy who they had a deadline on. And so we come to this point where the Canucks were relatively quiet. They moved a contract in Travis Hamannick that we didn't think they'd have any chance to move, especially not without taking money back. That was a great move. They then make a, a bet on Dermott. Your mileage may vary. Some people like the player. I think the organization views him as a third-pair guy, but a guy with a profile, you know, that they like. Like, they want to gamble on athletic, high-pedigree, young defenders who've, whose games have stagnated elsewhere, right? The, the whole point is, can we make him more than he appears to be, or than we pay for him on the day we acquire him? So, okay, $1.5 million in cap space cleared there. One young defenseman acquired. Those are two priorities. The organization, you know, wasn't exactly hiding as their priorities, right? They, they were open about it if you dug around and asked them about it. Uh, so, you know, no, no huge surprise. And then they deal Mott and they don't do anything else. Now, 
one thing to note is their offers, the offers they received for the other players just didn't match what they wanted, right? They, they didn't get the types of offers that blew them away. I think they would have loved to be busier. And I'm sorry, I don't think they, the Canucks would have loved to be busier. They would have loved to clear more cap space. They would have loved to land an additional player or two between the ages of 20 and 25. But they didn't get what they wanted. They didn't feel the need to make the deals now. And so they come away sort of somewhat unsatisfied with the full gamut of work accomplished, but having made a start, having made a start toward rejigging, reloading this organization uh, more closely in a way that is more closely aligned with their values and what they think this team needs. And, and I think it's important to note a few things. One thing is that I think they think the team's needs are legion, right? They, they believe that this club is not particularly close, that they need significant work. Um, they believe that cap flexibility is a crucial route to get there. They are right. Uh, they didn't get everything accomplished. It wasn't a Hail Mary trade deadline for this new management group. This was not Pat Verbeek coming in and <laughs> inheriting a ton of you know expiring deals and making absolute hay. They had time. They decided to use it. It was perhaps a little more conservative. And, you know, I think one big takeaway from this, uh, for the organization anyway, is they feel like they put a lot of groundwork. They, they put a lot of groundwork, gauged a lot of value uh, in terms of what their players, uh, you know, are valued at by various teams on the trade market. They think they have a good feel for who likes who. Um, you know, I think there was conversations and work done over the course of the past six weeks uh, in fact, I know that there was conversations and work done over the past six weeks that, that will pay off in the organization's view in the offseason when they get back to it, to rejigging this roster. So that's sort of my big takeaway is, is we almost need to take a step back and process this slightly differently than, than seeing it as like a first declarative sentence from this organization. It's more like, it's more like they, they started the sentence and they'll finish it. At some point in July. Well, we're all waiting for this front office to definitively put their stamp on the direction of this team. And and that just hasn't happened right. yet. And for a variety of reasons that you laid out there, it hasn't happened. Now, the fan reaction that I've seen on, on social media and coming into our inbox, uh, callers on, the, on other shows here on 650, there's been, I have seen at least a lot of frustration. I've seen some positivity out there as well, but I've seen a lot of frustration. And I think that's interesting because I, to me, it hinges on two things. One is the return for Tyler Mott, and we can discuss that just a little bit in a second. But I think the other one is because there was so much speculation and so much hype, a relatively quiet deadline feels like a letdown. Now that's understandable, right? Like the trade deadline, hey, we work for Sportsnet. <laughs> we're, we're as complicit as anyone else in hyping up the trade deadline. So I completely understand that, you know, you you wake up on Christmas morning and it's just a pair of socks instead of, you know, the new PlayStation under the tree. I, I understand the sense of frustration and the sense of disappointment there. But what I've seen that kind of mutate into is an idea or a concern or a fear that the reason moves weren't made is because the team doesn't think there has to be big moves made. And and as you just laid out, I don't think that's a fair read of the situation at all. I, I'm not basing that on the reporting and the sources like you have. This is just looking at the fact that they did not they did not have to move the players like Besser or Garland or Miller or Shen or Pearson yada 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 they did not they were under no pressure to have to move those players i think 
that more than anything else is the biggest reason why all of those players remain on the roster. But I would not look at this well, deadline and well, think and the market though. Yes, and the market. Yes. Like one thing to note is you look at all the forwards who got traded, and other than Brandon Hagel, was there a return that made you go like that's what the Canucks should have done? Andrew Kopp goes for what a couple picks, uh, a heavily conditional first that requires the Rangers to like roll through the playoffs. Um, you know that's not that's no none of us would have been satisfied with that if the Canucks had made that deal for JT Miller. Frankly, none of us would have said that was a home run deal if they'd made that deal for Connor Garland or Brock Besser. No, right? Um, you know, go down the list, find a big name forward that moved. Claude Giroux a little bit different. He had the uh, full control of the situation, but like that's not a huge return either. A 2024 first, or is it a 2025 first? Like some long-winded first years away and Owen Tippett, who's, you know, uh, an intriguing young player, but hasn't been able to crack the Panthers' NHL lineup and has significant growth to do in the defensive side of the game. I mean, you know, that's that's a guy probably with middle six potential at this juncture of his career. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... The, go, go, go on down the list. Arturi Lekkinen, a second and... Uh, Justin Barron. I mean, is there any Canucks forward highly touted that, you know, we've lit linked as big ticket items that you would have seen the Canucks do that deal for? No. No, right? No. The answer is no. So, I mean, a, a big part of this too is the market didn't shape up for them. And, and so as much as I think it was based on time, it was also based on what was out there, a determination that, you know, if the market wasn't going to bear what they needed it to, they were better off to waiting and, and seeing what it looked like in the summer. And, of course, the forward that the Canucks do move, the one move they make on deadline deal is Tyler Mott, on deadline day, is Tyler Mott to the Rangers. And the initial and immediate reaction, again, from fans, we were on air at the time, and our inbox was, well, that's all? That's all? Why didn't they just hold on to him? But then you look around at the other deals that went down, and Tyler Mott for a fourth-round pick fits exactly in line with what other teams were getting. So if an extension was not in the offing, I think it was absolutely the right move uh, for Patrick Alvin in the front office to pull the trigger on that Tyler Mott deal. I understand that there had been times in the process leading up to the deadline where you know there was speculation or reason to think that maybe Tyler Mott would go for something more than that. But at the same time, you look on the deals that actually happened in the lead-up to the deadline, and that Tyler Mott for a fourth pick just falls around right in line with other things we saw around the league. Yeah, it was market value. And you go through what, you know, Vladislav Nemesnikov went for a fourth. Um, and Mason Appleton went for a fourth, and he's an RFA. Um, you know, and then you look at the guys who went for a third. It's like Nicholas Delorier, who is one of the NHL's, like, five apex predator fighters, right? So a, a rare profile. And Johan Larson, who can play center. So those guys get a modest upgrade over your fourth line wingers and there you go that's that's what it is now dolly wall and i as we reported over at the athletic this morning the fact is is that extension talks never got particularly close like they never the number they were far apart mott and the canucks were very far apart and i think it speaks to the respect that the canucks had for the player the 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 hope that perhaps they'd move more close together that they waited until the 11th hour as opposed to doing it at 9 a.m., right? Um, I also think an interesting wrinkle, and, and we didn't include this in the article, but it's my understanding. I don't think Tyler Mott was a primary Rangers target early on in the process. I think it was an opportunistic one for them as the day unfolded. 
Uh, they were definitely interested. Mott was being made widely available. I reported that on the program yesterday. And I think the Rangers ultimately decided that they'd pounce and add some speed and some penalty-killing juju to their bottom six. And, you know, they had a pretty good day, I thought, the Rangers, in terms of value shopping. I mean, they basically buy a third line without, like, a, a third line that might be really good in Vetrano, Mott, and Cop without parting with a really premium asset unless they win two rounds. It's going to take them winning two rounds before they part with something of significant value. Um, you know, I like that for them. That was a, the, that was some nice work. But yeah, the, the Mott thing in particular, this was just such a vital contract for Mott with where he's at in his career, with the injury history. Um, you know, this is a deal that he needs to set his family up for years to come, and, and hopefully he gets that. Uh, the Canucks, however, had to be protective of their cap space. They weren't going to do that type of deal. They, they couldn't afford to. They couldn't afford to do a premium type deal with a guy they love and a guy who fit perfectly with their vision for, you know, how this organization would conduct itself, both both in terms of his on-ice form, but also off of it. Uh, just that, you know, they, they can't pay a premium for those pieces. They're too committed elsewhere. Uh, they never got close. Honestly, they, that deal, both sides knew what it would take. They talked long into the day, but there was never movement closer together. They never got particularly close, and so Mott was dealt with about 25 minutes or so to go before the deadline for that fourth round pick. Again, I, I think market value, and I, I think the Canucks had to do it. I think they were right to do it. Um, you know, I, I, for me, that was a, a decent deal. It's not probably the best deal uh, we've ever seen, obviously. Uh, sometimes when you sell a player like Maude, as Yannick Hansen said, you know, the fourth round pick, that's not going to move the needle for this team in the long run. But if you're always disciplined about making sure you don't bleed value, uh, it will pay off in the long run. Good process, even if the return and the initial sticker shock, uh, you know, obviously hit this market pretty hard. And the Mott deal, obviously, is not earth-shaking, right? Yannick Hansen said it with us yesterday. We all know that. We all understand the inherent odds of hitting the lottery, so to speak, or even just getting, you know, a, a useful player in the fourth round. It, it can be very difficult to do, but I, I do think when you look at the history, the recent trade deadline history with the Canucks as an organization, even a kind of mundane move like trading Tyler Mott for a fourth round pick really stands out because, okay, yeah, this is kind of just a bread and butter NHL trade deadline deal, right? Like you're all, you're a long shot for the playoffs. You have a bottom six player who's a UFA, who's on a cheap deal, no, 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 no movement clauses to speak of to hold up a deal. Uh, and he's in demand around the league. Boom. You make it for market value, which in this case is a fourth round pick. Like that's not earth shattering by any means, but it's also the type of thing that we just haven't seen a lot of. With no. the Vancouver Canucks. And it, not only have we not seen those deals, but we've often seen uh, the team under the previous administration kind of fall in love with players like Tyler Mott, who are good fits, who you know bring a lot of uh, intangibles and leadership and character to the team. All of that's true. I mean, I think back to Tanner Pearson at last year's trade deadline, and I like Tanner Pearson a lot as a player, and I, I think he's an interesting trade candidate going forward, but... I think there's a there's a very interesting parallel to be drawn by uh, drawn between how the last regime handled Tanner Pearson and how this regime handled Tyler Mott. Right? In one case, it was oh, you know, Tanner Pearson, he's too important to our team. We can't risk losing him. We're going to lock him up before the deadline. And in this case, it was well, you know what? Maybe the return isn't ideal, uh, but we have to get what we can for this player rather than tying up our cap space just because we've fallen in love with some of the things he brings to our team and. 
I, I do think the Mott deal, again, as as kind of run-of-the-mill in the larger scope of NHL trade deadlines as it is, I do think it illuminates at least some of Patrick Alvin's philosophy. And remember, this was his first trade deadline as a full-fledged general manager in the NHL. But you look at just kind of what the Mott deal represents. And one, it's an unwillingness to lose a pending UFA for nothing, or at least go past the deadline without a contract extension in place for a pending UFA. It took care of the business that absolutely had to be done by the deadline, even though they didn't get everything they wanted to do done, as you said. And the other thing that really stands out to me is, We've heard a lot, and we can see with our own eyes, that Tyler Mott was a really good fit for how Bruce Boudreaux wanted to play. Obviously, we saw the responsibility that line was granted, and we also know that Jim Rutherford really prioritizes speed and the forechecking ability that Tyler Mott has. So it stands out to me that even though he checked so many boxes and he would fit really well with the long-term vision of the team, they were disciplined enough to say, we can only do it at a number makes sense at a number that makes sense for us. We're not going to fall in love with the player and sign him. And even though he's an excellent fit for what we're trying to build, we're still going to pull the trigger and do the deal at the deadline. That's the thing that stands out most to me about Tyler Mott. This was not a case of, man, this is a leftover from the past regime and we really don't see him fitting in our future plans. This is a player they like, but they still did what had to be done at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a conventional seller's move, but so often this organization has, you know, I heard Jason Bruff the other day refer to it as fight the machine, right? Fight gravity, attempt to defy it. And in, in attempting to do that, you know, I think they've gotten themselves into a bit of a mess, a mess that Rutherford and Alvin are going to have to disentangle. And, and it's not going to be easy, right? Like, it's not going to be straightforward to do at all. And, and I think we've seen a lot of seams over the course of the past week, right? I think we've seen a team of late where fatigue is, is beginning to wear on a group that's been, you know, sprinting every game being do or die for months. And all of a sudden, you're tired and you can't kind of fall back on the structure, right? that you need to have to be a durably successful hockey team. I think we're seeing with Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, you know, a player who's laboring and battling injury, it seems to me, you know, I certainly hope so. And, and yet there's long-term questions that that, po that poses that are, I think are really tough for this club to answer. Like, does Oliver Ekman Larson have to have his minutes managed more rigorously going forward? And if that's the case, do you need Ekman Larson if you want him to be successful in game 60, does he need to be a third pair defenseman for much of the season? And if that's true, how do you ever build a top four <laughs> considering you've got, you know, a 7.26 million committed on your third pair in the regular season? Um, you know, I think we're seeing a team where if individuals aren't performing at a rate which you can't count on them producing at forever, right? Whether it's JT Miller or Bo Horvat or Thatcher Demko, or Quinn Hughes, you know, without, without that type of performance, this club's in trouble. And that's not how a good hockey team functions. That's not what a good hockey team looks like. So how do you make this team better? Well, you kind of have to take your medicine. You kind of have to make sure that in every transaction, you're mining value. And, and for me, at least, you know, while the moves that they made were probably a little more conservative than I'd ideally like to see. Um, you know, I at least see that. I at least see, you know, Hamannick out, which is a steal. Dermot in, that makes sense. 
basically basically you're halving the commitment to your defense core and bringing in a player who's no longer redundant. You now don't have three of the same type of guy in Shen, Pullman, and Hamannick. You have Shen and Pullman, and then also uh, this guy who's a lefty, who's younger, who can move the puck, who can skate, right? I, I like that as a move, especially when it saves you one and a half million and the acquisition cost is virtually nil in the final assessment. Trading Tyler Mott for a fourth round pick? Yeah, it's it's not fun. It's, it's an anger-inducing trade. I understand all of that, but it's what good teams do. Like, it's what smart organizations do, and they make those hard decisions time and time again. And when you do it enough, when you do it with discipline, when you do it every time, when you refuse to bleed value unless you're going for it, it matters in the end, right? It, it, you, you end up with the, the one hit. You know, maybe you do it four times. Maybe one of those four times you get a player who doesn't even play in the NHL, but at some point he wins the Hobie Baker or he's nominated for the Hobie Baker or he excels at the World Juniors and all of a sudden you've got a piece that you can trade. Um, you know, or you've got the fourth round pick and you're the team that's able to make the savvy deadline buy, right? That becomes your, you know, crucial depth defenseman. That becomes your Maxim Lapierre. So, you know, you have to be mining this type of value particularly when you're in a team with as little flexibility, as little margin for error, right? And honestly, as little hope of significantly contending this season as the Canucks found themselves with on deadline day. And with Mott, we've heard again and again that the priority or one of the top priorities from uh, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford is to clear cap space going into next year. And obviously the Hamannick deal does a little bit of that, although they take some more back on uh, with Travis Dermott. But with Tyler Mott, obviously he's a pending UFA, so there is no actual money coming off of your salary cap. But in addition to the fourth round pick... You know, you are also avoiding making an extension that you might regret, right? You're you're avoiding getting squeezed and saying, ah, we don't want to go past, we don't want to accept a fourth round pick, and we don't want to go past the deadline without an extension. So, you know, we'll budge and we'll give the player, we'll meet to, we'll meet him where he's asking, and then all of a sudden, maybe you overpay a little bit based on what Tyler Mott would actually get as an unrestricted free agent. So you are, in that sense, freeing up a little bit of cap space because you're avoiding making the kind of unprudent panic decision at the deadline just because you want to lock up a player that you like. It doesn't actually clear cap space, but I see how it fits into the goal of, you know, we just have to give ourselves a whole bunch of flexibility uh, in the offseason. And look, if that means saying goodbye to Tyler Maude, a player we, re- we really like, we're willing to do that. That's just fine. And I think, again, it's it's not earth-shaking. It's not earth-shattering or anything like that. But it, it is an important move, I think, to see from this front office in their first trade deadline uh, in charge of the Vancouver Canucks. Is there anything else that stands out to you, Drancer, about whether it's about how this front office is going to function, the priorities they have, the direction they're wanting to take the team, anything, any other kind of lessons about this front office that you think we can glean from, you know, even a relatively quiet trade deadline here? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think, I think we learned a lot in terms of, I think we learned a lot in terms of the organizations or new management anyways overall view right I, I do think we learned that they're willing to wait they're willing to be patient um you know the the travis dermott example is is really instructive here for me uh the club noticed that he was being a healthy scratch on a, on a somewhat regular basis they reached out to toronto 
understanding that Toronto, you know, might be looking to upgrade and at some point might want to move a guy who's, you know, a seven, eight defenseman for them and who's making 1.5 this year and next, they just sort of let it be known. Hey, like if you end up needing to clear that space, we're here for you. Like we'd like to see what that player is in our organization. And then they waited, they bided their time. Um, you know, the Hamnick deal ended up coming together fortuitously because there were no other bidders on Hamnick. It was Ottawa or bust, which is you oh know, a tough look, a tough look for noted girlfriend haver Pierre Dorian. But <sighs> the, but the, you know, fact of the matter is, is that they found their targets. They found a low cost target, a guy who they thought could be acquired as a cap dump for them in the event they were able to move cap space and they sort of pulled it off under the cover of darkness, right? They, they managed to insert themselves into a, a, another trade basically, and essentially turn it into a four team deal um, that, that landed them an upgrade on defense and made them younger, faster and cheaper. I like that methodical approach that we saw. Um, now, was it too methodical for me? Probably a little bit, to be totally honest with you, Jamie, like, I do think that this team needs dramatic change if they're going to reverse course, if they're going to fix, um, you know, their overall positioning vis-a-vis -vis the Pacific Division, not just in the immediate term, but, but long term. And so, you know, I would have loved to see more, personally. I would have loved to see more. I think the team would have been well served to be more aggressive. And yet, you know, I, I can accept that and understand that. If the offers aren't what you want, and the market certainly looked pretty favorable to buyers, right? Uh, to me, anyway, particularly in the forwards, in the in, you know the defense market seemed more favorable to buyers, but the Canucks weren't really chopping defensemen on, aside from Hamonic. So, you know, I think the fact is is that if the prices aren't there, and if you have time, well, like why rush? Why, why, why do you need to make the trades yesterday? That's sort of an artificial deadline from a Canucks perspective. It's a meaningful deadline to a buyer going for it. It's not one for the Canucks. And so I think we need to almost reorient our thinking and, and also understand that this is clearly a, a management group prepared to wait. And that discipline, that stands out to me as well. I think it bodes well for this management group, but the discipline to hold if other teams aren't ma matching your asking price. And I think we see an echo of that in how contract negotiations apparently played out with Tyler Mott. And they, they did not feel the squeeze. They held their discipline uh, and they decided to move on from the player. We will look ahead to the rest of the on-ice season for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, they still got to play out the season even after the trade deadline. What does that hold for the team? And what does the offseason hold? What are we watching now uh, that the trade deadline has passed? How will this front office continue down the road to put their stamp on the Vancouver Canucks? As a reminder, make sure, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up. It's the Canucks Hour on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 
Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Another segment of the show here, Tuesday edition, post-trade deadline with Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider, my co-host Thomas Drantz. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. So, Drancer, it's been such a tumultuous and such an eventful few months for the Vancouver Canucks because we have been in some ways consumed and obsessed with trade speculation and the prospect of major, a major roster shakeup coming. But they've also been winning a ton of games until recently, at least until this last fateful homestand. They were winning so many games that there was a lot of focus on, hey, can they actually find a way to claw back into this playoff race? So now the trade deadline has passed. They also lost those last three games on the homestand, only picking up one point in the process. And their playoff odds have cratered as a result. They're not completely out of it, but it is much, much more of a long shot than it was at this time last week for the team. So we're in this interesting zone now for the rest of the season they still have 18 games left and it's it's not necessarily an unfamiliar one for Canucks fans where the playoffs are technically in reach but a very very long shot and there's a lot of curiosity to see how the team will handle the remaining stretch of the season just from a kind of you know 3,000 foot perspective what are beyond the hey, can they find one more miracle to pull out of their hat and make the playoff race interesting again down the stretch? Beyond that question, what are some of the key on-ice things that you're going to be watching for here down the stretch for the Canucks? Well, I mean, I don't think we can just abandon the playoff race. I mean, as it stands today, right, they'll wake up four points behind Vegas. Four points behind Vegas because Vegas got shut out by the Minnesota Wild last night. And they have a game in hand. So Vegas plays um, again tomorrow against the Winnipeg Jets, right? Which is not an easy game. Uh, You know, they're in Winnipeg playing the second leg of a back-to-back. And then the Canucks play, we know what the the Canucks play. We know the Canucks' next seven games, and it's a murderer's row. And that Colorado game, you know, that's uh, no question that's going to be a very, very difficult one. Um, especially as Colorado is likely to have some of their deadline acquisitions in, uh, pr- provided that you know everything goes well with Lekkonen's work visa and, and on and on. But you know, teams that add after the deadline tend to be fired up. Teams that sell after the deadline tend to have a bit of a lull. So you know, we'll see. But there's a real possibility that the Canucks play in Colorado. You know, have one of those Canucks specials. Maybe they get outshot forty-four to twenty-five and still get two points out of it, right? I mean, that's it happens. We've seen we've seen this team do it a fair few times. And then you're going into Minnesota and you're two points back with a game in hand on Vegas. I mean, you know, we're only five days removed, Jamie, from people being like, "Is this team better constructed than we gave Jim Benning credit for?" You know, and now it's like, oh, I'm so glad they sold, right? Like, sell it all, sell it all. Like, Why, why didn't they to... sell more? Why didn't they trade Besser? Why didn't they trade this guy? Yeah. Right. Like, we, we have to, we have to avoid that misstep, right? The Canucks are a playoff long shot. They've always been a playoff long shot uh, all season. Like, since mid-October, <laughs> certainly mid-November, we knew that this team was going to need something really special to make it. That storyline is not over yet, right? The, the rhythms of a hockey season, 
ebb and flow. And, and let's see. Like, let's see. They have this brutal seven-game stretch left. Uh, you know, if I was a betting man, and I am, albeit not on hockey, right? I would expect I would expect that the Canucks playoff odds likely peaked last week, right? But that's not necessarily, you know, that's not fate. That's not fated. This club still has a lot of hockey to play. There's still a ton of games. Uh, there's still games against some of the teams they're chasing. They play Dallas this weekend. They play Vegas twice the following weekend. So... You know, let's give it some time. I think that's still number one is, you know, this club at least has two weeks. They have seven games left. At the end of that seven games, we're going to know, as Bruce Boudreaux said the other day, are they out for sure? Or do they have anything like a shot? And so for me, that's number one. So right? uh, particularly, yeah, sorry. Th- there, there you for go. Me, that's number one. You heard, you heard it here first. Uh, Thomas Durant says, don't count the Canucks out of, of the playoff race. Uh, well, we're, we're breaking new grinder. No, look, okay, before we go on to other things, I take it's your... It's true, though. No, no, it's true, right? I, and I take your point, but here's the thing. So you say, okay, they're going to be, you know, four points back of Vegas with a game in hand, but really, like, Vegas is on the skids, and so you're also looking at, can you try, Can you catch Dallas, right? Because when Dallas plays their games in hand... Yeah, you need to catch both. Right, and, and the other thing is... The, what makes it so difficult is so yeah Vegas is playing a really tough game against Winnipeg. Well, if Winnipeg wins that game, that that's not necessarily great for the Canucks' chances either because they that becomes another team that you have to hop wow. over in the yeah. uh, in the wild card race. So the Vegas, their situation is fascinating, and it's it is kind of interesting that those those much hyped three games that the Canucks have against Vegas, the Canucks might be able, maybe be able to overtake the golden Knights and it might not end up mattering, right. Depending on what Dallas uh, and, and some of the other teams fighting for the wild card spot do. So I look, I take your point. Absolutely. I also just think okay. it set, it sets up as an incredibly, incredibly difficult road uh, for the Canucks to try oh. to, to try to turn it into rally, but look, fair point. Oh, fair, for sure. For fair sure. Point. Plus a thousand or something. Right. But, yeah. but not out of the question. And you know the 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 fact remains that Vegas. Yeah, I mean, do I do I think that we should seriously discuss the possibility of the Canucks passing Vegas? No, not really. But I mean, for me, as we look down the stretch, that remains a a storyline and the most important storyline to monitor. Uh, number two for me is going to be just the evaluative environment. Like, what do we see? Do we get to see Rathbone? Do we get to see Lockwood? Um, do we get to see Pod Colson and what does he look like in the American League? Right? That that to me in particular is fascinating because, you know, Pod Colson had, I think, 15 really slow games, right? And then 25 absolutely scintillating games. And now he's kind of had 20 kind of slow games again, you know? And that's not unusual for a 20-year-old forward in the NHL, particularly one who when he fully arrives, is going to be, most likely, you know, a guy who trades off of old man skills. And I don't mean old man skills like, um, you know, like, uh, you know, smoking a pipe and reading Faust. (laughs) I mean, mean the sorts of skills that are very rarely possessed by young players in the NHL, right? Knowing how to... Knowing how to... And knowing how and when to put a guy through the boards so that no one wants to hold the puck when you're on the ice, right? Knowing how to create space for teammates. Knowing how to kill penalties. How to be an assertive two-way piece. Like, those sorts of veteran details in his game. But, 
you know, I also think we haven't seen a player who's been a super dynamic offensive force, right? And again, that's not unusual for a guy who's mostly been a bottom six forward for this Canucks team. What does he look like in the American League? Can he dominate in the American League? Does he, you know, is he a point per game plus guy in that playoff environment? Uh, that to me is a fascinating subplot and one that will have, I think, significant ramifications for this organization because, you know, Pod Colson to me is sort of like a mystery box, right? Like we don't really know what he could be or what his ceiling is. I think we've seen flashes in which we're thinking, okay, like this could be something really interesting. And I also think we've seen some flashes where it looks like, okay, most likely this is a middle six guy. Um, you know, this is a guy who, if he has a Tanner Pearson-like career, that's a huge win. And so, you know, getting more data on that, and I think we'll get a ton when he's papered down in the American League, I think that's going to be phenomenally instructive in terms of, you know, tracking his career trajectory. And that, among other things, you know, seeing Rathbone in the NHL level again, I think is crucial for this club, getting a sense of what they've got there, particularly because his usage has been pretty prescribed down in Abbotsford, um, you know, seeing if Lockwood can hack it, uh, maybe even seeing if Lockwood can hack it in the Tyler Mott role. Uh, I don't think he's ready for that. Uh, you know, Mott was probably the driver on that line, but they certainly are going to need someone to replace Mott's speed. And, and it's hard to think of anyone in the organization who better fits that profile at the moment than Lockwood. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot to take in terms of how some of Vancouver's Young players, fringe NHL players, fair when elevated into, you know, whether it's the NHL or in, or in Pod Colson's case, you know, demoted, you know, in scare quotes, because it's not really a demotion, but placed in the American League environment with a chance to show what he can do while being a primary, right? Like a primary piece, like the guy for... Uh, a team in that league, uh, still a really very difficult league. So th that to me is a is a fascinating subplot. Lockwood and Rathbone stand out, I think, for obvious reasons because they're the kind of most interesting NH young potential NHL pieces playing in Abbotsford right now. And Lockwood in particular, you know, you you kind of hope to see or you wonder if the club is kind of hoping to develop just a plug and play system in that bottom six, right? Where it's like, hey, here's another speedy forward that we can put in this system and kind of hope to find instant success. Look, it's big shoes to fill with right. Tyler Mott. Yeah, a, but... lot of, a lot of work to do to exactly. get there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is the, That's the, the, the exactly yeah. approach. That's the hope. And, and Will Lockwood is kind of going to be the first test of that hope. Okay, let, let's see how we do with this down the stretch here in these uh well, well we'll see if if and when Lockwood does come up uh to the big club the pod Colson point is interesting too and I think it also brings up the question of deployment within NHL games for a player like Vasily pod Colson as well and do we see his responsibility increase if the Canucks aren't able to commit make this last miracle stand on this seven game gauntlet that they have coming up do we see him start to get a uh, more regular power play time as well because you know the last time we saw the Canucks on the ice, Pod Colson was skating on the fourth line with Nick Patan and Alex Chason. And I, I think it'll be interesting to watch. And again, this is not a new 
grant new debate or a new needle to thread for the Canucks, the the balance between increasing a young player's responsibility down the stretch of the season versus trying to get as much out of your team as you can to keep the playoffs in chase. But that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye out for sure is what does Vasily Podkolzin's deployment look like? What kind of opportunities is he given down the stretch to really prove himself? The, the unique thing this year is, and, and we remember it in particular with Travis Green, when he didn't have a contract extension in place at the end of last season, I would think that Bruce Boudreaux has significantly more job security despite his contract status kind of being up in the air as well. So I don't think there's the same sort of kind of perverse incentives for the coach to just keep playing his veterans as much as possible to win games, even once the playoffs are out of reach. But I I still think it's something that bears monitoring. One of the other things that I'm very, very curious about, and for a long time there was at least this sense or this perception that maybe – the hockey operations department was waiting to see, okay, can this team make a playoff push and can they show us that they deserve to stay together and maybe we don't have to make as drastic changes as we think we need to. And I, I'm not sure how much that was ever a real uh, you know, thought for the front office, but we have also heard them talk very explicitly from Patrick Alvin in particular about, hey, we need the practice habits of this team to change, right? We have all scratched our heads about the slow starts that the team has exhibited time after time after time. We've heard Bruce Boudreaux voice his frustration and his exasperation with the level of preparedness that his team has shown. And I'm wondering if this is a really still a really important evaluation period for the front office, not to see how much talent there is, not to see how many games they can win, can they make a playoff push, but from a habits and a work ethic and an effort and a culture perspective, how important is this final audition as they go into the offseason likely looking to make some significant moves? Is, the, is this a chance for players to kind of prove, you know what, I actually – have those attributes off the ice that you're looking for. You can keep me around because again, we have heard some very pointed criticism of of a lot of those things from the front office. Well, we have, I've been thinking about this a little bit and you know, Jamie, I don't think it's a secret that I, I sort of think this team is underskilled, right? I don't think that's a secret. So, what what is more like just let's use the Occam's razor approach really quickly. What is more likely that this team of professional athletes, many of whom we've seen elevate their games in the playoffs, Miller, Bo Horvat, right? Um, guys who've won multiple cups, Luke Shen, uh, guys who've won the Calder Trophy, like Tyler Myers, guys who've had playoff success, like Oliver Ekman Larson, uh, you know, Quinn Hughes elevating his game in the playoffs, Thatcher Demko. We've seen Thatcher Demko deal with enormous pressure and not blink or flinch not not even apparently break a sweat right we've seen Elias Pettersson have this ice water in his veins in huge moments so what's more likely that this group of high-end pro athletes who've overcome the odds to even be in the NHL to even be in the positions that they're in are not capable of motivating themselves early in games or or is it more likely that this team's not particularly good they're not particularly fast. They try to play a, an up-tempo system. And if they're off by 5 or 10%, it's really, really evident very, very early because they're just not as good as most of the teams they're facing. Like, what's more likely to you? So you know? I completely take your point. And I think the talent differential, the talent gap, or you know, the lack of talent, whatever you want to call it, just the, the overall 
level of ability of the team is absolutely part of the story. There's no question about it. However, I think you could also say that they are, you're seeing that effect in games, even when they should be the more talented team on the ice, right? It's not just that you see it against more talented teams. And I agree with you. My default explanation for something like that, right, would be, they're just not that good, and that's what we're seeing. And it just happens to come out more in the first period for whatever reason, because of how other teams are playing or whatever. I agree. But that's my or because de- that's when teams are dialed. Yeah, exactly. That's my default explanation. The number of, again, whether it's Patrick Alvin questioning the practice habits, whether it's some of the other things we've heard, the, the exasperation and the frustration from Bruce Boudreaux, it gives me pause. It, that That's all. It gives me pause. And I, look, I, I don't have the, you know, we're not in the locker room, all of that, all of those caveats apply to see what, what how the team is actually functioning kind of day to day. But there's enough smoke there that it at least gives me pause to kind of reconsider my assumption, which is that your explanation is 100% of it. It's definitely some percent of it. Like, it's definitely some percent of the, ex- of the explanation, but I am curious how much the other stuff enters into it. And, and there's just enough there to at least make me wonder. Yeah, not, well, not, you're right. I'm not around. I, I don't really have a sense of it. But, um, you know, to me anyway, I just wonder how much... I wonder how much we talk about things like identity and starts and practice habits and at the end of the day, none of it matters compared with talent level and, and construction. And and for me, those issues remain, you know, forefront for me. Like, th- those are the bigger issues. Those are this team's biggest issues for me. Not close uh, to, to um, anything else. Well, the, I... the other stuff, I do wonder how much it's, you know, just sort of, just sort of stuff you talk about to explain a team performing because it's not fun to just be like, Hey, they're not good enough every day, even though, you know, we've built a whole show around. (laughs) Well, And and, uh, this touches a little bit on something that we talked about with Yannick Hansen yesterday when he was on the show. Oh, did we ever? How great was Yannick? Yannick is just an absolute, (laughs) an absolute master of the sports radio form. It's, it's really incredible. I felt like I was pitching to him in a home run derby. You know, you're just like, you're just like, like little, like 50, 50 yeah. mile per hour right down the plate, just like letting him tee off and Belt get high. out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was so fun. But, you know, one of the things he said was uh, that you have to have a winning team before you can build culture. Like, you have to have a team capable of winning, and then you start building the really positive culture that can take you from, you know, winning a playoff round to winning three playoff rounds, challenging for the Stanley Cup. That is is strikingly different than what we hear from a lot of ex-players, ex-executives around the NHL who, you know, in my experience, at least tend to really emphasize the importance of having that baseline of culture. I thought that was fascinating. And to your point about using bad culture as an explanation for losing, I I think oftentimes the causation goes the other way, right? Where the team is losing a lot. So it's really hard to be for all of the players to kind of buy in and create this incredible atmosphere when you're coming to the rink and losing a lot, right? Like that's really, really hard. And even though (laughs) the Canucks went on this really impressive run of success under Bruce Boudreaux, that was also coming on the heels of an extended run of bad results and losing. And I don't know if, you know, the Boudreaux bump and that incredible run was enough to completely remove that effect from the team but I I think you're right we often say you know we often think of it as culture is driving results but I I do think there's a lot of evidence and I thought it was very interesting to hear Yannick Hansen say this as well that you know what actually results can play a really important role in building culture too well you know who you know who insists that leadership and culture matters a lot the people who are paid very well to be leaders in an organization and instill it right I mean 
uh, I don't mean to be too skeptical or too cynical here, but um, there's a lot of it that I sort of listen to and I'm like, yeah, or just get lots of good players and fit as many of them as possible under the cap. I feel like that would result in a good culture. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe try that. Yeah, it's, just it's, it's funny how, you know, most teams that are first or second in the conference uh, come playoff time tend to have pretty good cultures because it's fun. It's fun to win a whole bunch of games and that papers over yep. a lot of discontent, right? Maybe you don't get along with the guy uh, next to, who has the locker next to you very well. But if he's out there scoring, you know, 60 points a year and helping your team win, you'll probably find a way to overlook it and you'll probably get along with him just fine on the ice where it matters. So yeah. look, uh, it's like it's like no one ever said the culture is great in Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> but they made beautiful music that is a that is a fantastic fantastic comparison uh Drancer, and I, I i very much appreciate that one but look all i'm saying is whereas my default would be no it's all talent and we're just looking you know we're trying to make a problem where not exists with the culture explanation i do find it fascinating how consistently it has been a talking point from different parties with insight, with behind-the-scenes knowledge of what's going on uh, with this team. So I think it's something the Bears monitoring as we finish out the season here with the Vancouver Canucks, go into the offseason, which I expect to still be a, a very active offseason for the team, and I think you're on the same page as that with that as well, where, look, it didn't happen at the trade deadline, but I don't think this team is going to look all that similar to what it does now uh, when the, the summer is done and they're at next year's training camp either. It best not. Like it just, it just, it best not, uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to put anyone down. I just, I think this team has a lot of road to run to get to where we all want it to be, you know, which is durably winning games and entertaining this market the way that this franchise did from the year 2000 to the year 2015. Um, you know, I think that's how you build uh, that sort of generational brand loyalty that this organization has been able to lean on and, you know, that I think has been challenged by the fact that this city hasn't hosted a playoff game in eight years now, right? I mean, they made a run in the bubble, but that was in Edmonton. I was there, but I, no one else was, right? It's been, it's been eight years since there was a playoff home date in this city. Um, you know, there's still a remote chance that that breaks this year, that that streak breaks this year, but it's deeply remote. Um, you know, I don't just want to see it once. I want to see it be an annual occurrence. I want to cover games in May. Like, let's go. And and I don't know that this organization is going to achieve that. Uh, returning this roster based on what we've seen this season, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, not not just that I don't know. I, I feel very confident that significant changes are needed, and I think that we've seen that. Like, I think that, I think that they've shown us that pretty compellingly over the course of the past ten days. And, and frankly, over, over the balance of the season, where, where even when it's been good, it's been good on a knife's edge. It's been good because they have the best goaltending in the league, or because they're on a shooting percentage heater, or because JT Miller's on a million-point pace over 15 games. Um, you know, it needs to, it, there needs to be more there-there from this organization, more talent on this roster. And, and to me, more than identity, more than culture, that is the first task at hand. Uh, I think we saw the start of it, but I think it was very much, very much a, a toe dipped in the water. Um, we'll see the submersion I'd expect 
come this off. We will see when they take the full splash, the full dive into the deep end of remaking this roster. That's going to do it for us today on Canucks Hour. We will be back, of course, tomorrow on a game day when the Canucks will take on the Colorado Avalanche. The People's Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Jand is up next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.